A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Almost the end of 2020. I hope wherever you are, you're okay. Hope that whatever you're doing, you're all right. Hope that whatever you're not doing, and we're going to do anyway, uh, isn't such of a bummer. Um, if you're living on the island of Australia, uh, Christmas is very different this year. There was a coronavirus outbreak cluster of COVID-19 in Sydney. They try their very best to get on it, but I'm uh, pretty sure, uh, like, the news is changing every hour, but at this point, uh, eh, not a lot of people are traveling interstate. We got very lucky. We were on a, a list of casual contacts locations, so uh, before we traveled, we made sure that we got swabbed. We waited for our negative results. We got on the plane and... We got to Queensland and pretty much shut the border right behind us. So we got lucky, but all of the aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews who were going to come up here as well didn't make it. So I think we were going to have close to 20 people here on Christmas night. Uh, it wasn't that, but and that's sad because I love them, but it beats the alternative, which is our hospital system failing. I was reading the other day in Reno, in Nevada. They've, they've converted two levels of an underground hospital car park into a ward because they've actually run out of room inside the hospital. And it's all COVID patients. So you just imagine you get into a car accident or your kid falls and cuts themselves or, you know, your lung collapses or some other health emergency happens. You go to the hospital. Yeah, sorry. No ICU beds, emergencies falls, no beds. Sorry, go home. Like, holy shit. That's terrifying. We need the hospitals to stay working. So that's why we're staying home. 
I'm currently in southeast Queensland in the uh, Canal District of southeast Queensland. It's quite lovely. Watching the boats go by, watching people uh, take their little tinnies and go fishing. It's kind of fun. Mullet are jumping, which is pretty funny. Um, my mother-in-law's going to the garden right now. She's picking some basil, fresh basil off the tree. That basil's going to seed, isn't it? Yeah. We'll be collecting those seeds. Our lettuce back at home is going to seed. Oh, fresh lettuce. Just watching mum get some fresh lettuce. Look at that. Fresh butter lettuce straight out of the garden. That's going straight on a salad. We're going to have lunch for lunch today. Look at that. Harvesting our own food. What a time to be alive. Oi. They've got a fantastic wicking bed at the back of their place. Oh, look at that. Two handfuls of greens. That's so good. Oh, it's just the best. Amazing. You're eating, eating food that was grown here in the sun. Brilliant. So, Karen Douglas is on the show today. It's the best of 2020. We're we'll take a bit of a break from producing full episodes over the Christmas break and just uh, replay some of the conversations because there's a lot of new listeners around this time. People tell each other about the podcast and we've noticed there's always a big spike in downloads. So I asked Andy and Rachel, who make the show with me, what were their favourite episodes for the year? And we picked a few. So Rutger Bregman was last week. Karen Douglas is this week. Professor Karen Douglas, sorry. And she's a world-renowned leading researcher in conspiracy theories and why people believe in conspiracy theories. Because goodness me, hasn't 2020 been a year for that? If you've had a few head-slapping, jaw-dropping conversations in person or online this year, you've, you've probably have been wondering, how can someone believe this bullshit? I, I know this person. I grew up with this person. I love this person. What? They're smart. What the fuck are they doing believing this? That's a very long answer. And it's an answer that I wanted to know more about which is why I reached out to Professor Karen Douglas. She's a very in-demand researcher and she's the, the great, the grand poobah of research in this area. She's very, very clever. We'll get into that conversation shortly, but I wanted to talk a bit about, because I've, I've, I got really interested in this and I started to do a lot of reading and a lot of uh, reading of books and um, a lot of research of uh, Karen and other academics. I'm very interested in the psychology behind a lot of these things. and. Look, I'm not a professor, I'm not a researcher, but from what I can gather, my short, my personal take on it is, now this could all be wrong, because don't worry, there's a professor coming in later who's got all the answers. My personal take on this is that we as humans, we got to today because we do a few things really well, but two of them particularly well. We can discern meaning from an event without witnessing the event. For example, we can see a grown tree lying on the ground and rather than go, what's a tree do, doing growing that way? We can figure it out. Well, it didn't grow that way. It used to be upright. Now I've seen upright things fall over. I've witnessed wind so strong it could push me over. Therefore, there's probably a storm or something which caused this tree to fall down. I didn't see it happen. I wasn't here when it happened, but I've got a pretty strong idea of that's why this is the way it is. Okay, brain can rest. And I guess the other thing we're able to do really well is we can create a story about either a past or future event 
which will influence the behavior and choices of somebody else. Uh, to use that example of the tree, for example, you and me are going camping. We're looking for a place to camp. I want to put the tent underneath this big old tree. You can see a storm coming. You tell me a story that paints a picture of a future where the wind blows so strongly that tree falls over. I then can see that story. I can see that future that you've just created and go, actually, you're right. Let's put the tent over there. All right. Neither of us have seen the tree fall. The tree's still standing. The tree may stand all the way through the night. However, you have created a story that is real enough to me to influence my behavior. We're really, really good at making meaning out of events. And we're really good at either involving others or getting involved ourselves in a past or a future meaning or situation, which isn't in this moment, not right now, but is put in a past or future context. Now, sometimes those things are real. Sometimes those things are not real. Now, for me personally, as far as I'm concerned, and this may be against what you believe, but I believe things don't happen for a reason. Things just happen. We are the ones that put the reasons on the things. We put the reasons into it. That is what we do as humans. We create meaning out of stuff. Those reasons can either happen automatically due to our conditioning, the things that we were brought up to believe, things that happened to when we were younger, things that we've read about, heard about, saw online, things we've exposed to, things we might have seen in a movie that aren't even real. And then those things happen so quickly in our head, we act as a reaction to those thoughts, which might or might not have anything to do with the reality of the situation. Or we can acknowledge those automatic thoughts and say, oh, that's interesting. Thanks, brain. But is there something else happening here? Is that what's really going on? Let me take another look at this. Let me ask somebody else. Let's have another look at this from another angle. Sometimes a pretty bird flying past the very moment that the coffin of your loved one goes down into the ground at a funeral is just a pretty bird flying past. It's only the spirit of your loved one taking flight if you decide it is. I guess where we get into trouble is, um, oh, hey, how you going? You good? I'm just recording something. You all right? Good to see you. Good to see you. Go on in. So, uh, Wolfie's great-grandmother just arrived. It's pretty awesome. It's cool. My son has great-grandparents. It's freaking cool, man. Um, I guess where we get into trouble is there's, when there's so much ambiguity about the event or the event's so large and so diverse and could have any number of causes that our incredible urge to find some meaning, some reason, we can't be with it. We can't be with ambiguity. That our incredible urge to find some meaning leads us quite vulnerable to manipulation or hacking even. Because it's, we're pretty terrible with uncertainty as humans. We're pretty shit with ambiguity or not knowing what's going to happen. We're bad like that. We like to know when things are going to happen, how they're going to happen. We like to have things being predictable. And we also like to know that someone somewhere has got this. We don't like to have the responsibility of everything on our own shoulders. That's why we like leaders. That's why we invented leaders, I think. 
we like to know that someone else is taking care of things. We like to get this feeling that mum and dad, there's some adults in the room somewhere. Someone's got this. Even if that's a sinister person, we like to know that someone somewhere is making this call. We don't like to have this idea that shit just happens. We like this idea of someone else is thinking about this so I don't have to. Now, my personal experience, the most common form of these two things coming together to allow me personally to be manipulated, oh, goodness me, that was religion, without a doubt. Because I personally feel that in many ways it's, it might be. This is why we invented gods. Because everything in our lives happens because somewhere, somehow a human was involved. So for massive, massive things, like a storm or whatever, why not invent some gigantic, magical, human-like thing who does stuff like... I don't know, make cyclones, make lightning, give babies cancer, help your football team win a game. When I was about 11, 12, 11, 11, <laughs> I was absolutely convinced that I would go to hell if I masturbated. I'm sure I'm not alone with this. I was positive that any bad thing that happened to me was a direct result of me just following my body's completely natural hormonal urges. Getting in trouble at school, grazing my knee, playing handball, failing a test, whatever. I was riddled with guilt and often drew conclusions in my head that this particular bad thing was happening to me purely because of something I did. Even worse, worse, because of something that I thought. Now, now I know that's all bullshit, but at the time, people of authority, people that I was told I should trust. They told me these things, so I believed them. Now, don't worry, in the end, my natural hormonal urges won out and I put together in my head that anything which makes something as normal and natural as this a sin is probably not worth it. So pretty quickly, I drifted away from believing that shit. And to be honest, I just went through the motions and said all the prayers and shit like I was reciting a nursery rhyme. Because if I did, it meant that I could get off a couple of periods of maths and rehearse with the church band so I could play music. That was it. I guess what's also interesting is that the other thing our brain is, is really vulnerable to, it's there for a reason because it helped us survive to this point, is a thing called the anchoring effect. Really interesting. We rely too heavily on the initial piece of information we hear about something when it comes to making decisions about that something later on. For example, I'm in the, like I said, I'm in the canal district of Southeast Queensland. So for, for example, say I'm, I can see a jet ski moored up over there. Say I'm trying to sell you a jet ski, right? And I say to you, yeah, the jet ski, I'm taking 10 grand for it. And then you come here and you take a look at the jet ski and go, oh, I don't know. And we haggle, haggle, haggle. And eventually you give me seven and a half thousand dollars for it. Now the jet ski could only be worth six, but I've anchored you to the idea that it's worth $10,000. And that is the point from where you, your foot's kind of nailed to the floor and that's where you kind of walk in a circle around this idea and you can't get away from it. There's a trick that our brains play with us. I've exploited your brain's ability to make an objective decision because of the information that I've anchored into your brain, the very first thing you've heard about this thing. And you see it play out in something like, I don't know, uh, climate denial, all right? Say you're a particular political team and the opposition is always talking about climate change. You're like, I don't believe them because they're the opposition. So the first time someone from your team says anything about climate change, they say, oh, that, oh, that's just a hoax. It doesn't matter what facts show up. You're anchored to the initial information 
that has happened and got into your brain. So all the facts, whatever, they will ultimately, they will always fail. They'll ultimately fail to prove the initial information wrong because your brain's kind of married to this initial idea. But you don't even have to prove something wrong. All that's needed to start the process of manipulating someone, all you've got to do is throw them off balance, scare them wobbly enough, upset the boat so much that eventually they'll just start to look for solid ground. And that's where the manipulation kicks in. And you don't need much information. You just need to put doubt in, all right? Oh, you got a flu shot? Huh. You should do some research into those drug companies. I'm telling you. Yeah, they want, they want you to think they're legitimate. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got that vaccine inside you. Do you even know it's in it? Mm, yeah, they want you to think it's safe for a reason. All right, so now you're panicking. You're thinking, fuck me, what have I just put into my body? What, what can I do? What can I do? I'm, I'm terrified. What happens now? Here you go, mate. Watch this video. It explains everything. Cue batshit crazy but very sincere, very clear, and apparently together video that eventually ends up talking about lizard people and microchips. It's not... It's not, how, it's not easy to see how people are very easy to nudge towards or away from behaviours once you set them off balance. And it gets worse when the only information that you're getting is on the internet, all right? It's a completely malleable version of reality. Depending on where and how you use the internet, various algorithms will show you a version of the world that may or may not be the same as the version of the world that I see, or another person sees, or even reality. But if there's seeds of doubt in there, you only need... You only need a little bit of a, a bit of a splinter to incept doubt into someone's decision-making decision -making process. And then it's like a stone in your shoe, a little stone in your shoe. You'll change the way you walk because of it, all right? And you'll do anything to get that stone out of your shoe. Uh-huh. Mm. That's what they'd want you to believe, isn't it? Mm. And that's the thing, you know, the they, this big um, scary they. What's scarier? For me, what's scarier? That there's a big mysterious they conspiring to control the world to their whims, a tiny cabal of people who've got their fingers and all the buttons in the world. Is that scarier? Or is it scary to accept that we are 7 billion people flying through space, falling forwards into the future, just trying our best to do better than the day we did before, taking actions based on our morals, values, our upbringing. Some of those actions are helpful, some of those actions sinister, but for the most part, balance out on the side of cooperation and survival that the world is just a massive, unpredictable clusterfuck of randomness. Seven billion people each day, each one of those people will make 35,000 separate decisions. Completely impossible to predict, utterly chaotic in how it appears. 245 billion personal decisions made every single day around this planet. Some of them which will affect my life, some of them which will never affect my life, some of them which will, in combination with decisions made the next day, the next day, and the next possibly at some point affect my life. That is terrifying and complicated and huge and my brain cannot possibly picture that or handle that, the, the scope of that. And that's way scarier. But I'd rather believe in that because I personally feel that's closer to reality than a single group of omnipotent people in a room pushing buttons on the world. Seven people making decisions about our future is far less scary than seven billion people who'll do absolutely everything they can just to get a meal have somewhere safe to sleep tonight and have their kids do better than they did. That's frightening. But it's easier for me to accept this gigantic thing which my brain can't grapple with than some giant grand narrative that ties up the impossible complexity of this planet in one simple sentence. But that's just me.
that's just how I feel about it. Uh, luckily, I have a professor on the show today who's going to give us the real deal <laughs> with research, backed up research. But if you like this episode, let me tell you about one other episode really quickly before we get into it. If you're interested in conversations about how people can get caught up in things like conspiracy theories, how what we believe somebody who is a smart person can get caught up and, and start believing in bullshit and get manipulated, you'd be very interested in episode 281 of this show. Just scroll on back in your podcast feed and look for an episode with Joe Thornley. We talk all about the world of cults. The low success rate of deprogramming is often due to the fact that people in the cult have already told you that other people will try to convince you that they're wrong. They're going to say this, they're going to say that. So when they do say this and that or try and make you believe the stuff they told you, it's going to reinforce your belief that the cult leader was right. He said they would do this. They told me and if, now I was, they're doing if I was ever in a van and then taken to a motel that this will be a test. That's their technique, yeah, it's a test, whatever. And so it often reinforces... And so they go back because they just go, oh, I didn't believe before, but now I do. They predicted exactly what was going to happen to me it's and what was insidious. said. It's insidious. Yeah. That is episode 281 with Joe Thornley, the author and the podcaster Joe Thornley. It's absolutely ripping. And uh, you may want to listen to it after you check this episode with Karen Douglas. So let me tell you about my guest today. Karen Douglas is a professor of social psychology at the University of Kent and has spent over 10 years studying the psychology of conspiracy theories. Karen's research focus is on beliefs in conspiracy theories. Why are conspiracy theories so popular? Who believes them? Why do people believe them? What are some of the consequences of conspiracy theories and can such conspiracy theories be harmful? She's also interested in the social psychology of human communication, including the influence of technology on social interaction and the psychology of sexist language. She's absolutely incredible. And I'm really grateful she said yes to coming on this podcast. I love having academics on this show because I personally, I get a real relief, a sense of relief of hearing super, super, super smart people who are worried about similar things that I'm worried about and using their mega brains to try and figure out how to help us as a world change the situation for the betterment of everybody. And I feel a lot better when I hear that someone as clever as Karen is doing the work she's doing. You can find her on Twitter, at Karen underscore Douglas. She's very prolific there. She's very good at what she does. She tweets heaps of articles and things to read about. She's very, very good. Very solid, reliable source of information in these strange times. So enjoy this conversation with Professor Karen Douglas. Well, firstly, let me say good morning to you, Karen. You're in the UK, and thanks for getting out of bed early to do this. I really appreciate it. That's okay. It's nine o'clock. Well, <laughs> still early. You know, I appreciate it. Uh, you're. Uh, well, what part of the UK are you in? I'm in Canterbury in Kent, or a little town on the coast near Canterbury in Kent. And that's uh, very near the university where you work. Yes, I work at the University of Kent in Canterbury. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Do I do I call you professor? What do I call you? Oh, Karen, please. Cool. What's it like the day you become a professor? Um, yeah, not quite nice actually. I think I've been a professor for maybe six years now. It's quite nice. You just get a letter saying, Congratulations, you're now a professor. 
There's no lab coat with a monogram? I thought there was a lab coat with a monogram. No, there's nothing like that, unfortunately. We do have um, what's called an inaugural lecture. So you have to kind of stand up in front of all of your colleagues and you invite your friends and your family and, and all that sort of stuff and, and give a lecture and have a party. But other than that, you just carry on with the job exactly the same as it was the day before. Oh, I think the inaugural <laughs> lecture does sound pretty good, though. Uh, that's, you know, yeah. obviously... That's a moment where you have a, a, a chance to present some work, that the kind of work that, that got you where you are. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really, really nice. And also it's really nice to have your friends and your family there as well because uh. often they're not, they're not psychologists and they don't really know very much about what you do. So it's yeah. nice to be able to get up there and give a talk and explain yeah. to them what you've been doing all these years. So it's really nice. All the times I couldn't come to your birthday or whatever, this is why. <laughs> I was doing this. I was doing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's good fun. Sorry. Photoshop me now into the photos on Facebook. And then just look like I was there visiting and being a professor. Look, I'm just I'm just really I'm really grateful that I got in touch with you. I'm really grateful that you you responded. I'm somebody who tends to explore far and wide and listen to all kinds of things outside of my my zone of of knowledge as a, trying to learn more stuff. And I heard your voice on I can't even remember what podcast it was. I'm like that sounds like a fascinating person. And she's Australian. And so I've got to say, I'm, I'm really grateful for the, there's actually you're the, the second that I can think of immediately, of like really high-end academics who just have a public email address and, and you wrote back. And I'm so grateful. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was really nice that you got in touch with me. <laughs> well, I think the work that you do is so vitally important and uh, not just for people on I don't want to say my side of things or people on the, the rational side of things. Your work is so vitally important for the people who are stuck inside these patterns yeah. of thinking because it would be terrifying. Your work focuses on conspiracy theories and and the psychology of the belief around conspiracy theories. And it's easy to go, that person's a crackpot. Of course, global warming's is real. Of course, vaccinations can't kill you. And of, of course, the Illuminati doesn't control everything. But as someone who's lived through episodes of uh, psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusion, I, that has happened in my life. I was on meds for quite a while. I can really relate to being on the other side of it mm. and jumping at spiders and being utterly terrified and seeing proof in everything that this thing that I'm so terrified of is real and how much that would drive a person back into themselves, away from anyone, and just having those beliefs reinforced by everything they look at, it's a very volatile, unhealthy place to be. And so the work you're doing is really important for people on the other side of this as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think that conspiracy theories are just, at the moment, um, they're just, they couldn't be more relevant, I think. Like you say, people are locked down. They're spending a lot of time by themselves. There are so many more conspiracy theories floating around about coronavirus. Um, there's all sorts of things going on, which I guess attract people more to these conspiracy theories. It's really, really quite topical at the moment. I guess we should kick off by a bit of a definition first because that's kind of probably help people understand what it is we're actually talking about. And I was trying to think about, you know, what's a way that we could describe it? Okay, you've probably got a far better way to doing it, but I was just like, like a conspiracy theory is probably commonly, it's built upon the idea that the only reason that something that is uncomfortable to be true 
is because the people who claim that it is true stand to benefit from the truth of that thing being true. <laughs> is that too complicated already? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, definitely. So, I mean, like your standard kind of, I guess, academic definition of a conspiracy theory is, is simply a proposed plot, which is supposed to be carried out in secret by some powerful people. And yes, they usually stand to benefit from whatever they're doing and other people don't. So the activities that they're engaged in, allegedly, are not supposed to be in people's general best interests and more likely to be in their own best interests. Have you found that there's also a bit of a trip switch built in there to perpetuate any kind of chance to disprove it. For example, I heard this great joke perfectly this week because it's the week I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Why do elephants wear red shoes? Yeah, it's impossible to say, no, they don't. It's impossible to answer exactly why. Oh, no, do, do, do you know yeah. this joke? No, I don't. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm so excited to tell you. Let me ask you this then. Okay, Professor Karen Douglas, professor who's... who's Published peer-reviewed scientific work as around conspiracy theories. Why do elephants wear red shoes? I don't know. Why do elephants wear red shoes? <laughs> so you never see them when they're stealing strawberries out of the strawberry patch. I like that. <laughs> That's right. You've never seen an elephant in a strawberry patch? Boom. Exactly. Truth. And it seems to me that any really kind of solid conspiracy theory will have that worked into it. Like A is true and B is why the truth can never be proven, so therefore mm-hmm. A is true. Yeah, yeah. A lot of yeah, a lot of conspiracy theories are like that. And if they're not exactly like that, then they do often have layers and layers and layers of other bits of information which also can't be disproved. So people who believe in conspiracy theories would say, well, you can't disprove this. You can never say that that's not true. And so you just get kind of layers and layers of complexity added to often what's a very, very basic conspiracy theory, like I don't know what's happened. I think something's up here. We have to kind of question the truth and all that kind of stuff. But then you start adding all of these pieces of information and then all together you have what you would say is probably an unfalsifiable theory, completely unfalsifiable And they have this idea that any evidence to the contrary that you might, if you do somehow get sucked into an argument, unfortunately, with someone who is into this irrational belief, any evidence to the contrary just justifies the truth that the conspiracy that they believe is is built on. For example, I don't know, like the death rate per millions of vaccines Mm -hmm. is lower than the standard death rate per population. But because somebody died after getting vaccinated, therefore all vaccines are dangerous and Mm. Big Pharma is out to kill our children. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that that is, that's one of the key features of a conspiracy theory because, of course, conspiracies do happen. They have happened in the past. So as soon as there is any kind of example of something like this having happened in the past, then suddenly anything and everything is possible. And um, another interesting thing this happens to me quite a lot if you start to say anything about conspiracy theories and and trying to refute them or debunk them then of course you are seen as being part of the conspiracy and therefore you're not a trusted source of information and you're not somebody who um, should be believed so the amount of times that I've been accused of being part of conspiracy theories and working with governments and specific individuals have been mentioned I've kind of lost count, really, the number of times that I've been put in the conspiracy theory, which, of course, you know, I just work at a university. I teach students and do research. I've got nothing to do with these things. 
I don't know, Karen, that couch behind you looks pretty fancy. I bet you bought it with all that all that big farmer money. <laughs> Ikea. It's actually it's a really ugly sofa. <laughs> I piffle. It's it's fantastic. I did kind of want to ask you about this because I've I've explored this topic quite a bit on this show. I've had it was an interesting confluence within the course of a number of weeks. I had a woman who's a documentary maker who made an extraordinary documentary about vaccines and the history of vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And I also had a woman who's an expert in cult indoctrination. And right. the parallels between the thinking patterns that we have as humans that get, I guess, taken advantage of by people who are perpetrating things on cult members, the parallels, it's just too big to ignore. Like very early on in the cult indoctrination process, they would say to you, Irish now, look, I know it's hard to believe, but all this stuff is absolutely true, that there really is a comet that is going to pass by the planet on mm-hmm. November the 17th, 2042. But there's another comet that came just before that. And those people travel around in white vans and one day they may just come and grab you and tell you everything mm-hmm. I've told you is wrong. But you need to believe that those are the people from the evil comet, okay? And so very early on, you're told that if anyone ever tries to deprogram you, they're they're in on it. And the parallel there is, I don't know, have you have you explored anything along those lines in your work? No, not really. No, I haven't really looked at the complexities and actual um, detailed features a lot of of a lot of the conspiracy theories. But you're absolutely right; they often have this. And I think the white van thing is actually really really good because white vans are everywhere. So there's always this possibility if you're slightly this way inclined that, you know, someone from a white van will jump out and get you. If you have that belief, then it's, it seems quite realistic. But um, I've mainly kind of looked into the psychological, I guess, reasons why people are attracted to conspiracy theories rather than the features of the conspiracy theories themselves, even though I think that's also really, really important and probably is a bit of a piece of the puzzle to try to understand a little bit more about why people actually believe them. So what ideas appeal to people and and which ones don't? Because it is the case that some conspiracy theories, they can last for decades um, like JFK, um, the Apollo moon landings, conspiracy theories about those sorts of events. But then you find others that people don't really entertain for very long and they just disappear after a while. So I think it's a, it is a really important question to ask, what is it about these particular beliefs that resonates with people and, and when do they not resonate with people? Is there a particular kind of person that you've found is deeper into this sort of stuff than, I mean, we've all got a mate that's into it and I bet that if we stood all our mates next to each other we'd be like oh yeah you know (laughs) you'd see some commonality um have you found that well in psychology there's been a lot of research on trying to understand like personality characteristics and other differences between individuals that might mean that someone is more drawn to a conspiracy theory than others and there have been quite a lot of factors that have been uncovered, things like demographic factors for a start, like education, level of education. So educated more people are less likely to believe these sorts of things. There's no real gender differences as far as I've found, but people who are older tend to believe them less, various things like that. In terms of personality, you find weak relationships between conspiracy beliefs and variables like self-esteem, Machiavellianism is something that kind of comes up. Tell me about Machiavellianism. 
So Machiavellianism is seen as a personality trait which characterizes this idea that you can be, you have a cynical approach to power and you feel, if you're sort of high in Machiavellianism, you feel that it's okay to step on people and do, I guess, less moral things to get what you want to be in a position of power over other people. And that's basically what that is. And um, we find that people who are um, higher in Machiavellianism are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And, and sort of the mechanism for this is that if they're Machiavellian, they kind of assume that other people are as well. Uh-huh. So it's like using information about yourself to judge what others might have done and what events might have been possible. So if you're Machiavellian, you think, oh, okay, yep, well, I would do that. So perhaps other people would do this as well. So then, therefore, you see the, the conspiracy theory more plausible. So you think it's more likely that people might have assassinated Princess Diana or faked moon landings or whatever. If it's possible for you, it's possible for anybody. So kind of personalizing a trait of ourselves and then projecting that onto another, even though that that personality trait has no business whatsoever in a French paparazzi photographer in 1997. You've got that perfectly right. So it is this projection. You're using information about yourself and projecting that onto other people to try to kind of make sense of what might have happened. And so this conspiracy theory seems more realistic. That's what's going on there. So you you mentioned the education and level mm-hmm. of education. Why does that play a role? Well, education is quite important. It doesn't doesn't mean that people who haven't had high levels of education are you know stupid or anything like that. Um, it doesn't mean that at all. What it actually means is that often a certain type of education will give people the tools and I guess skills to be able to reject information that's unreliable. So a lot of the time we kind of talk about conspiracy theories being related to critical thinking ability. But it's not so much an ability, it's a skill that can kind of be learned. So a lot of psychologists now are looking into how to improve education systems, like right from um, teaching young children in school, the importance of critical thinking, because it's like a, it's a tool that you can use to be able to, I guess, critically evaluate information that you see look at the source, where is that coming from, Um, who's saying it, what's their authority to say this, what are their credentials, I suppose, in a way. So then you can kind of accept or reject that piece of information and it's easier for you to do that if you have those kinds of skills, I guess. So that's really what's what's kind of going on there. When I think about the, there's one particular person in my life who I adore and is very good at what they do but is just a bandit for... (laughs) staying up way too late at night, diving into filter bubbles and believing whatever shows up. But my assessment of this person is that they feel in a weird way, kind of like picking a scab, they feel a great amount of satisfaction like, ha, 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 now I know. Now I know something that he doesn't know. Mm. And I feel sure they feel a sense of safety, even if they're discussing or digging up something that would make you feel quite unsafe. This person feels a great sense of safety and surety that they are now more secure because they they know. Does that sound right? It does, yeah. And, and that nicely ties into another variable that we found in psychology that relates to conspiracy belief, and that's narcissism. And also another another factor which we call a need for uniqueness. So when you were describing your friend as thinking, you know, aha, I've got this information and I feel special now, 
I have this information that other people don't have, then I guess conspiracy theories, people look to them in attempt to sort of satisfy that need to feel unique and need to feel, I guess, a little bit better than other people. So if you have this information that other people don't have, then you can maintain this idea that you're special and different to others. So you've got unique information that others don't have. So you're better than them because they're in the dark, but you're not. They're sheep, but you're not. You can actually see what's going on. Wake up, sheeple! Sheeple, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Which is wild because I'm pretty sure Mark Marin came up with that and there's one person that has got nothing at all to do with conspiracies. It's Mark Marin. <laughs> sheeple, it's a good word. Yeah. It's a really good word. Back when he was in Air America, like, God, 20 years ago or whatever, like, yeah, it's an interesting word. It's a, it is. But the, the narcissism thing, there would need to be an element of that. You know, I did not do anything to do with physics after grade 10. And I'm sure there's people my age who didn't do that either. And they might've <laughs> failed it even. They just did grade 10 science and that was it. But now I am I am 100% sure that there's no way that the planet is warming up or there is no way that physics works in this particular way and CO2 can form a blanketing layer of, of gas around the atmosphere. Like it's completely impossible. It's all the, the, the idea that I... I have to know more than mm. a PhD scientist. Yeah, that's right. I think that even if it might not ultimately be satisfying to have that belief, people think that it will be satisfying. And they think that yeah, having this information is somehow makes them powerful again. And if you think about a lot of, of situations like climate change, coronavirus, the situation that we're in now, people just do feel a little bit powerless and out of control. And if you think you know the truth and other people don't, then it helps you, like you say, to feel a bit safer, to feel a little bit more in control and satisfies this need that you might have to, I guess, have the knowledge and um, certainty that other people don't have. So um, whether or not they work, I don't think particularly they do satisfy these sorts of needs because if anything, people end up feeling worse if they believe in conspiracy theories. The more you kind of go down this rabbit hole, the less satisfying it actually becomes. You you start to feel more more powerless, more disillusioned. Um, you trust people much less. So I don't think it really works, but I think that people do use them as a coping mechanism and also a way to just generally feel good about themselves. I had to do a lot of work to get better from the illness that I described earlier, and a large part of that work was acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. And that was just just being with how utterly horrible and awful the fact that I wanted to avoid actually was and just being with the fact that this is awful. Yes, it's awful. But therapists would be like, yes, it is. It's horrible. Can you stick with holding? Can you think about it for another 30 seconds? Yeah, my body's shaking and I want to vomit, but I can think about it for another 30 seconds. How much of wanting to believe in a conspiracy theory is an avoidance behaviour? I think it kind of is. And we have actually done some research on this quite recently, actually, um, that people will turn to conspiracy theories when they want to find a way to cope, which doesn't actually address the issue that you really need to be thinking about. So they do turn to conspiracy theories as an avoidant type of coping mechanism. It's linked to anxiety as well. People will turn to conspiracy theories when they're anxious. But in terms of coping, this is definitely something that people do. They will turn to these theories and these explanations without actually confronting the real issues. They will just say, well, it's, it's all the government. They're doing all of this. 
or, or even a conspiracy theory about climate change. Oh, it's just all a hoax. You know, it's just not actually happening. So you don't actually really have to think about the real problems and face up to them. It's fascinating that trying to protect our own, and you mentioned earlier narcissism, as protecting our own ego from the idea that it might not be right about something will go to such a, a humongous length to, I don't know, it's a, it's a bunch of politicians worshipping a wooden owl in the woods. That is why things are the way they are. It's mm. not, you know, for any, this is the only reason. Is the idea to want to simplify things a part of it? You know, I'm, you know I was thinking about this the other day. To think about why have we not made action on climate change, you're going to have to kind of understand that it's like, a hundred million different moving parts failing to come to a compromise with a hundred million other different moving parts over a hundred million completely separate and awfully complicated problems. That is just far too big to think about. However, I can say, I don't know, Karen, climate change, it's the Koch brothers manipulating the global market for their own financial gain. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's simpler. Yeah. It kind of breaks, like you say, down all of these extremely complex phenomena, all of these extremely difficult events to come to terms with and breaks it down into a very, very simple explanation. Often the explanation can be very, very simple, but then people start adding all of these layers too, which makes it more complicated. But at the very heart of it, and actually at the very heart of most conspiracy theories, you find this very, very broad underlying belief that something is wrong. And if you start from there, then that's something that a lot of people can relate to and a lot of people that resonates with a lot of people. So, um, yeah, then you've got the, the starting point for a lot of conspiracy theories, most conspiracy theories. Obviously, these things, like any idea, I mean, it, it does get into murky waters. And I'm fascinated with, as I mentioned before, like there's parts of our brain that have evolved to want connection, parts of our brain that have evolved to want a solidarity. You know, I have this in common with you, therefore I feel safer. Mm-hmm. Those parts of our brain to be approved of, as you mentioned before, to feel special or be made to feel special, to have access to knowledge that other people don't and that knowledge will then therefore make us safer. Yeah. Parts of those things that we've evolved with to keep alive and become the dominant species on the planet seem to have been taken advantage of by, and I'm going to get into very hot water here, you do not have to agree with me, in similar ways, you know, certain religions, certain cults, certain political parties or political movements. You know what I mean? Like there's an element of belief Mm -hmm. that is required to be a part of all these clubs that is not fact. But I can believe something. If I filled my little room here with five people and say, no, no, we all believe this and you don't, eventually you might go, maybe I might, what do do they know that I don't? And then then you're sucked (laughs) in and then there's six of us. And we kind of keep like water droplets in a pond all grabbing together. You know, the surface tension sucks us all together. And mm. I, I kind of find it fascinating that our brains are vulnerable to that kind of manipulation. Yeah, they are. I mean, I guess everybody has a need to belong. To some degree, you want to belong and you want to get along with other people. And that's quite a fundamental need that we actually have. And I think that going along with others is something that we do to avoid social pressures. That's just something that we do. But it is also the case that belief in conspiracy theories is related to some of these other phenomena that you've described, such as religious belief and um, other types of paranormal belief as well. And that's not to say that all religious believers believe in conspiracy theories or vice versa, or all people who believe in out-of-body experiences are religious or or believe in conspiracy theories. But there um, is 
a relationship there. So those types of beliefs do go together at least a little bit. There's some association there. So people who are, are religious are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than non-believers. Because I think the thing that many people, or I certainly struggle with, is how vehemently those who are in the belief of a conspiracy theory or, or some kind of conspiracy, how vehemently they will defend it as if it's a personal attack yeah. when you challenge it. Why do people feel it's a personal attack when you challenge a claim, for example, like uh, someone who, what's, what's something that's fairly benign, like a flat earther, all right? Yeah. When you go, but mate, the earth's not flat. Like we could, we're discussing a point. Yeah. We could, you know, it's like my bicycle's, my bicycle's black and orange. No, yeah. it's not. My bicycle's grey. You know, it's just a fact about a, an object, all right? Mm-hmm. But when I say, no, the earth's not flat, this person feels that I am going, and your mother's a horrible person. You know, like um, <laughs> why do people defend their thing as if you're attacking them personally? I think because um, it, it just becomes something that's very, very important. It becomes an attitude that people do hold on to very, very strongly. In some other cases, something that's quite trivial, they're not really going to bother if someone comes along and says, well, no, that's wrong, I don't believe you, they just shut that off, it's not important. But for something like this, it can become an all-consuming, very, very strong attitude. And when you have an attitude that's very, very strong, and the same goes for your political beliefs, you know, religious beliefs and all those sorts of things as well, um, they're very, very important to you and also can become a very, very strong part of your identity as an individual, like who you are just like your political beliefs do as well. So if someone comes along and attacks that belief, then that is something that you will want to very, very strongly defend because you don't want to let that go. You don't think that should go unchallenged. You believe it. You very, very strongly believe that it's true and you don't want anybody to challenge this extremely strong and important belief to you. It seems to me that some of the more powerfully motivating conspiracy theories are definitely people consolidate along lines of personal value. For example, like a a vaccination is very much an appeal to purity, an appeal to, oh, no, I am more pure. Thank you, because I do not, I do not have like, and I don't eat meat. I haven't eaten an animal product in nearly 20 years. All right. Me too. Although I'm a bit naughty with cheese sometimes, but I've been vegetarian. What are you going to do? Many, many years. (laughs) But I'm not telling you anything you don't know when there are people within the plant-based or vegan community who are like an extremist resistance fighter as far as dogmatism around, oh, really? Oh, so your headphones Oh, you bought them secondhand, but there's, there's still leather there, isn't there? Yeah, well, I guess you're not as pure as me, are you, mate? There's a value that, that some of these things, they tend to uh, organise along like a personal value uh, alignment. Have you have you found that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that like a, alongside the people who like to criticise vegans, I think that people feel threatened by that particular, I, I suppose, and now my values are coming out here now, they deep down know that what they're doing is wrong. And a way of kind of getting around that is to tell other people, well, you know, you're not, you're not so holier than thou yourself. And I think that conspiracy believers sort of do that as well. Again, they, they feel very, very, very strongly about what they think is the truth. And they will look to pick holes in other people's kind of moral standards, the tiny little nuances of these people's beliefs. They look for ways to kind of get in there and, and attack those as a way, again, of defending their own belief, if that makes sense. 
Very much, very much so. And it, it, I'm sure anyone that just heard you describe that can relate to a conversation they've had with a mate who's just spent far too long on Facebook, which, you know, does lead me to my next, you know, thing I'd like to talk to you about. It's only been a couple of years, 15 years since Facebook showed up. Mm. But and I believe it was, it was Roger McNamee, who was one of Zuckerberg's advisors and has written a book called Zucked, which is a, it's an extraordinary book. But he's of this view that if you spend, like, all it takes is just a couple of months, like maybe six months in the right Facebook groups and the right YouTube channels, and okay. it's going to be almost impossible to get you back. So we've invented these tools that are able to program us and hack our ability to perceive reality faster than has ever happened before in history. How do you go up against that? Yeah, well, it's very, very difficult. And I think the big tech companies, Facebook, Twitter, etc., have come under a lot of scrutiny recently because they do have a lot of conspiracy-related content and they've been very, very strongly challenged about this and have actually, as far as I know, come up with ways to sort of block that content so that people don't over-consume this information or it doesn't pop up in their news feed or in recommended advertisements and that sort of thing. It doesn't. It's not supposed to come through to people as much as it normally would. But I guess social media and the internet, it's, it's a really interesting way to kind of look at conspiracy theories. Like a lot of scholars would say that the internet and social media has been amazing for conspiracy theories and theorists because it's so much easier to find this information than ever before and people can share it and find other people. But I guess I don't think it's quite that straightforward and some research suggests that people who are not interested in conspiracy theories won't search for that information. They won't search for it and therefore they won't find it unless somehow it manages to filter its way through their social media somehow. But they won't see that material. The only people who will see that material are people who are that way inclined in the first place. So it isn't necessarily the case that the internet and social media has increased conspiracy theories, but it's actually a way of polarizing people who are already interested in conspiracy theories. So they'll search for this information, they'll enter these groups, they'll consume this information, they'll talk to other people, and their attitudes will become stronger, whereas people who are not interested will never get there in the first place. So I don't think it's necessarily making things a whole lot worse in that people would need to be, I guess, receptive to that information in the first place to go down that route, I think. But you've you got to admit, though, that in the earliest days of the internet, when there was an odd, one of the best ones, you'd have to look into the Wayback Machine, which is a, an, an internet archive thing. It was a thing called the Time Cube, mm-hmm. and it was this never-ending HTML screen that went for f- 400 feet of scrolling, and it was just this complete ranting of someone who was probably, and I can say this because I've been on and off and and back on again, someone in need of medication. Mm-hmm. and. When those videos are made and they look just like a newscast or when the article looks just like a news bulletin or it is masquerading as how actual researched and ethically sourced facts are presented, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, 
if you are able to discern the difference between this is an article written by someone who went to university, has an ethical obligation to their union, their legion of other journalists to present facts as if they were. Mm. This is someone who drives a forklift and spends way too much time drinking highly caffeinated fizzy drinks and has written something, you know, just full of trigger words and and photoshopped images. But they look the same. If you are unable to discern that, then you're boom, you trip and 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 now you're in it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that does happen. I think probably, again, you have to be interested in it in the first place to actually open it up and, and But of course and it's interesting it. though, Karen, of course, <laughs> we, you know, people want to like, oh, contrails, that's interesting. I've seen those things. <laughs> I always wondered what they were and, you know, it's interesting. The stuff kind of, it really is. It's a bloke on the corner going, Psst, come over here, I've got something to tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's... It's super interesting. They are. They're extremely interesting. They're incredibly entertaining. But I guess if you know what you're looking for and you know how to reject information that's just not right, then you're going to be able to resist these things. (laughs) I come across a lot. And it's not just like a lot of people think that conspiracy theories are just all for right-wingers. They're actually not. I see lots of left-wing conspiracy content and also lots of left-wing kind of fake news as well, which is something that's closely related to conspiracy theories. Uh, I mean, yeah. not not all fake news is conspiracy theories, but a lot of fake news contains conspiracy theories. I mean, I think that with political ideology, you do see a lot more of this going on at the right-wing end of the spectrum, mm. but it also does occur at more at the extreme left as well. It's very, very complex. There's a lot kind of going on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Over the course of the research that you've done, you would have spoken to, uh, I think the technical term is a shitload of people who (laughs) believe things that are not true, but believe them so much so that they are right in on it. What have you learned about observing cognitive dissonance in someone when you challenge them or or when you ask them about what it is they believe? Mm, I think it's very, very difficult to challenge somebody who believes in a conspiracy theory and I to be honest don't really make a habit of it because one thing I find is that people who have spent a lot of time researching conspiracy theories and sometimes this is just very broadly or a specific conspiracy theory like about climate change or 9-11 they've thought about it a lot more than I have and they've done a lot more what they would call research on this topic so anything that I say, they will be able to come back with some kind of counterpoint. And often I won't have heard of this particular element of the conspiracy theory. 
So I won't exactly know how to immediately respond to this until I've read about it myself. Again, these people have done a lot more thinking about this topic than I have. And um, they hold these beliefs very, very strongly. So A, they don't want to be challenged because they believe this is the truth and they hold on to this belief very, very strongly. And B, they kind of know a bit more about the various theories surrounding these events than I think I ever could know as a researcher on this topic. It's just the way it is. I would put it to you, though, that you're not fighting the same fight, though. You are a university professor who has, over a long and difficult academic career where you miss people's birthdays and stuff, learned how to discern from good information from bad, and you treat research and you treat sources with not equal weight and value, depending on where they come from. And, you know, I would put it to you that you are trying to play an honourable game of, say, for example, tennis, and this person's jumping in there with, you know, they want they want to throw machetes. Like, it's two different games, and it's not the same yeah. conversation to give the, the same weight to an argument to this kind of person. No. But it's your instinct to treat it that way. Yeah, that's right. It is, it is a completely different fight. I'm actually not in the game of debunking the conspiracy theories. Like I couldn't tell you for sure, no, that's that's absolutely false. I have my own opinions and I know a bit about these things, but that's really not, as a psychologist, what I'm yeah. most able to do. I can help people understand why these conspiracy theories are interesting to people and why they're important to people and the kinds of consequences that they might have for people in society but I actually don't make a habit of arguing whether or not these conspiracy theories are true. Probably good. Mm. But that, that is the thing because I'm, I'm sure people are listening and, you know, I'm asking this for myself because, you know, now I think about it, there's more than one person in my life that I do care about a lot and I just don't know what to do because I can see there was a time in my life when I got quite ill and I couldn't leave the house. I didn't want to leave the house. I was afraid to leave the house. I couldn't look other people in the eye. I was very twitchy. I saw, you know, I was jumping at spiders. You know, every mm-hmm. shadow was proof that something was wrong. All right. And I, I saw the confirmation of what I believed in everything that I witnessed. And it was terrifying. Okay. Mm-hmm. If there is someone in our life who we are quite worried about, someone who might be sharing things online or, you know, don't want to talk about it or, you know, I can't talk to you on WhatsApp, owned by Facebook, we have to go to Signal. What can we do? What are some ways that we can start to talk to that person? And we'd have to be obviously very gentle, like a hostage negotiator, really. We have to be like, uh, you know, how do we approach without having them then shut us off? Like, what are some ways that we can do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually really tricky because these beliefs are so strongly held. They, uh, It's very, very difficult to challenge them. And again, these people have thought about these things a lot more. So any points that you make, they will automatically reject a lot of the time or accuse you of being part of a conspiracy. I think there are things that you can do and also things that you shouldn't do as well. I guess one of the things that would be counterproductive would be to ridicule the person. Nobody likes that. And again, you're just likely to alienate this person further and make them feel nobody wants to listen, nobody wants to talk, everybody just thinks you're you're a crackpot. So I think that that would be kind of counterproductive And I think that there's probably a technique that might be quite effective in that a lot of people who believe strongly in conspiracy theories would characterize themselves as critical thinkers. 
they would accuse everybody else of not being critical thinkers, say, well, you know, you're not looking into this enough, you're not doing the research, you're not finding out the truth. So um, one strategy might be to, I guess, flip that over and start talking to the person about critical thinking and ask them about where they've got their information, what are the places they found this information from, and challenge them in that way. So in other words, challenge them to think critically about the information that they've drawn on to get to where they are. So you only call yourself a critical thinker, well, think critically about these things. And um, even though I wouldn't have any evidence to say whether or not that's effective, I have a feeling that it might be effective. I think it's a tool that's often used in people who have become radicalised, politically radicalised in some way. So I think that maybe there might be some parallels to draw with conspiracy believers and that that might be something that could work. Yeah, above and beyond that, I'm not really sure. (laughs) The first thing that you mentioned was is so important because the temptation to ridicule, it's a layup. It's so easy Mm. to go... Are you fucking joking? It's 24 degrees and it's the middle of July. The fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like I'm wearing shorts. The fuck's your problem, man? (laughs) Like we're standing in the evidence, you know, and it's terrifying. (laughs) That is terrifying. That is utterly terrifying, right? (laughs) But I can see that though it is very tempting to ridicule, all that does is shove the person further down the hole and further away from reality and, and further towards people who are even more extreme mm. than they are. And it might not be a direct challenge of their belief, but perhaps an effort to just kind of reach out and normalise communications, maybe go for a walk, have a cup of tea, you know, have a chat, try mm. and help re-engage with reality in a way. Because I think that's the thing that I kind of get concerned about when I look at the amount of communication that is not taking place face-to-face as somebody who, I'm wearing headphones right now, I won't tell you how loud they're turned up, but I do wear hearing aids. And so I know how much communication is verbal and how much communication is non-verbal. It's about 7% is the words that we use Mm -hmm. of communication, Mm -hmm. all right? Non-verbal communication, my hands, my face, my facial expressions, whether I blush or not, the tone of my voice, all these things paint the picture, the context of where we speak, where we're standing, my role, my situation, my relationship to you, the power structure, whatever. So much of our communication is just text, all right, Mm -hmm. that has no context, has no, nothing to stand on. And people's behavior is based upon communications that doesn't have the robust, resilient foundations of everything else that goes on around it. And people are making decisions based upon that. And I certainly wonder are we going to get to a point where we just kind of decouple from reality completely and that out here, I walk down my street and everything's fine, but when I turn on my phone, the world is on fucking fire and, you know, everyone around me is a One Nation voter and therefore now I start making decisions in my own life based not on reality. And then that gets super weird and I kind of wonder, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I do get particularly now as we get closer to the 3rd of November, which is the date of the American election, Mm. what are some things we might want to look out for when it comes to, uh, it was Carl Sagan, I believe, that said extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I I adore Carl Sagan. As we get closer to the American election, there's going to be more and more of this stuff out there. What are some things we should look out for to try to insulate ourselves, I guess? Oh, that's a very good question. Probably, yeah, quite a lot of things. Be very, very vigilant about the news that you read. And again, think very critically about the sources, where it's coming from. I would say don't read a certain person's 
tweets too much because um, a lot of them contain conspiracy theories and I think that a lot of people are very, very persuaded by those. Just be really careful about the information that's coming your way and I think that we in Britain did suffer a lot from conspiracy theories around the Brexit referendum and they they had quite an important influence on on the outcome, I feel. And we've done some research to suggest that people who did believe in um, the Brexit conspiracy theories were more likely to have voted to leave the European Union. These sorts of things are powerful and it's good to be on the lookout for them. I mean, that's not to say don't consume information widely. I think that's very, very important as well. But also just be quite critical of what you're reading and where it's coming from. I guess you could also, you know, keep a lookout for things like, you know, really simple stuff and they there's alliteration and so they're easy to remember. Possibility does not equal probability mm-hmm. and correlation does not equal causation. Mm-hmm. You know, just try and run through things. Through. Are there other sort of filters like that that we can kind of look at things through? Yeah, I guess so. And I think that's all just part of the same critical thinking sort of um, scenario. Yeah. I think just be wary of slogans and things like that, but also sometimes they're good to keep in the back of your mind because they're actually true. But, yeah, I think just be careful, be on the lookout. But at the same time, don't stick too closely to your preconceived ideas because you could be missing something as well. How did you get sucked in to conspiracy theories? What was it about it that, you know, made you like the the world's foremost expert on the subject? (laughs) Well, I just thought they were fascinating, to be honest. I mean, before I started doing research on conspiracy theories, I was doing quite a bit of research on, on social influence, so how people use various strategies, like mainly linguistic strategies to try to influence people and persuade them um, and also how people sort of perceive the process of persuasion. So I was just working with a student at the time and we were trying to work out what to do and we came up with the idea of conspiracy theories. The starting point was to try to work out if they actually have any influence on what people think. So they're everywhere, we see them everywhere, but are they actually having any influence on people or are they just sort of disappearing and this was back in 2007 or 2008 so a long time ago now so we focused on princess diana conspiracy theories and found that they actually did quite significantly influence how people evaluated that event whether or not he thought it was an assassination or whether she died in the car crash as the official explanation goes but people weren't really aware that their attitudes had changed so these conspiracy theories almost had like a hidden I guess, influence on people's attitudes. So it just sort of went from there, got quite fascinated Mm. about those sorts of questions. Like, well, they actually do really influence people. So we need to understand a little bit more about why, why people believe them in the first place, why some people do and some people don't, and um, also what some of the consequences of having these sorts of beliefs are. Like, if you believe a conspiracy theory or if a lot of people believe in a conspiracy theory, like anti-vax kind of movement, that sort of thing, then what does that actually do? And I became interested in it from there, I guess. And yeah, and, and that's such important work, particularly now that if JFK was assassinated, if Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act alone, which was the, the kind of big one f- forever, mm-hmm. that really doesn't have much effect on me as a person in Australia, right? Yeah. But Donald Trump tweeting that climate change is a Chinese hoax designed to erode the American manufacturing base, Mm. that directly affects me. It's got nothing to do with reality, but it's it's like weaponized. This conspiracy theory is now kind of 
weaponized and he's put this mimetic idea out there that then because of who he is and the influence that he holds and how much it can get spun around and repeated, the contagion of that idea just spreads so rapidly and then it becomes a reality, even though it's inaction on climate change becomes a reality Um, based upon... So it's it's so important to understand and I'm just bloody grateful that you're doing the work because it's really, really important as we... (laughs) As the news cycle speeds up, as the power of an idea and the ability for an idea, true or untrue, to get amplified so enormously to a point where it doesn't matter if it's true or untrue, it's now accepted mm-hmm. more than any time in history. It's so important to understand. Mm. And because you said you were working on influence, I'm so glad that I made get in kind of touch with you because if I ever choose to go on Survivor, I am calling you and you and I are having a secret chat. <laughs> <laughs> about I how say, I might make I would it. say don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? It's the most amazing show. Have you ever watched it? I have, but it's scary. I would never do that. <laughs> I only, I only asked this because the guy that won this year came on my show and he was like, oh, no, no, I went and studied with a, what is it called, NLP guy. And, I, you know, he would do things like 15 times over a course of five days, touch someone on the elbow while he did them a favour, all right? Mm-hmm. And then on the 16th time, when it was, I need you to vote with me on this tribal, of course they said yes. And they, they didn't realise that they'd been yeah, yeah. essentially manipulated. He was very, yeah, very clever guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to understand that stuff. Using you, psychology, yeah. I like that. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> Look, I'm so grateful that I, uh, I was able to speak with you today and I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for your time. I know you're a very, 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 very busy person. If people want to find out more about the kind of stuff that you're talking about, if people are kind of interested, where would you say, what's the next move? What's the next thing that someone should go and read up on? Well, I think there are some really nice books that are available if you want to get a very popular science sort of understanding. There are a couple of books. If you just search on Amazon, you'll find, find them. one of my former undergraduate students has written a book about conspiracy theories. His name is Robert Brotherton. It's a very nice, nice book. And various things like that. I mean, some of the academic papers that we've written are not too horrendous to read, I would hope. We've written a couple of nice summaries, I think, of all of the literature, everything that we kind of know on conspiracy theories, and I'd say some of those articles aren't too bad to read, but there's a lot out there, but I guess just be very careful about what you Google and don't go down the route of actually believing a lot of these conspiracy (laughs) theories that can be dangerous. (laughs) Amazing. It's really, really important. It really is the defence of reality, Mm. you know, particularly when it comes to things like climate and vaccination. I mean, like, are we coming towards the mother of all conspiracy battles as the COVID-19 vaccine comes towards us? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And I know people who are working on looking at the psychological factors that would predict whether or not a person would accept or reject COVID-19 vaccination and belief in conspiracy theories about vaccination generally does does come up as quite a major predictor and people have been suspicious about vaccines since the history of vaccines. But these conspiracy theories have just gained so much more traction in recent years, especially when a lot of famous people are telling the public, no, these aren't safe and they don't work. Don't get your children vaccinated. Don't vaccinate yourself. And, um, yeah, we, we know that these conspiracy theories are having an impact on people's choices and they will have an impact on whether or not people choose to be vaccinated against COVID-19. They just will. Wow. 
Well, um, it's going to be an interesting couple of years ahead of us. And uh, I'm grateful that there's someone like you doing the work that you're doing and and teaching others to look into why it is the way it is so we can, in many ways, vaccinate ourselves from this kind of Mm -hmm. mind viruses that Mm. can infect us. Which can be done if if you consume the right information before you come across the conspiracy theories. Then the conspiracy theories don't work as well. This actually does happen. You can essentially inoculate people against these sorts of ideas, but it's quite tricky because the conspiracy theories often get in there first. So by consuming the right information, what do you mean? Well, like in terms of vaccines, then information that's coming from health authorities and scientists, um, medical professionals, about um, the safety and efficacy of vaccines rather than what Celebrity X has Mm. said on Instagram. Yeah. I guess if the basis of you arguing your conspiracy theory involves you completely dismantling every power structure that is used to argue against you, you may want to think about your argument. Like, well, of course they'd say that because they're, you know, they're getting paid. Well, of course they'd say that because, you know, that's the state. Well, of course they'd say that because, you know, and how far back are you going to go? Well, it's the church. Well, it's whatever, you know, how far back can you go? If you're you're finding yourself having to completely try and knock every Lego tower down, you might want to look at what your argument is standing on. Yeah, I I, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to jump upstairs and and put our fully vaccinated baby to bed. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. How old's your baby? Uh, well, we've got two. One's 16 years old and the other oh. one's 10 months. Oh, wow. So both are fully vaccinated. That's good to know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The, the 16-year-old, she's amazing. She's an extraordinary kid, a powerful young woman, and uh, oh, very clever nice. and a delight to be around. And uh, the 10-month-old is, oh, crikey, he's nearly 11 months now. Good Lord, it'll be one soon. He's great. <laughs> oh. yeah, he's, having a, he's having a great time. We're trying to inoculate him against going to sleep while being cuddled. <laughs> At the moment. That is a challenge. Ex- I remember those days. It was a long time ago, but I remember those days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're getting there. All right, Karen, I meant what I said. Get in touch if you ever need anything, okay? Will do. Thanks so much. That was Professor Karen Douglas. She's cracking, isn't she? Isn't she great? You can find her on Twitter. She's at Karen underscore Douglas. She's great. And she's, if you look her up on YouTube, she's got a couple of really interesting lectures. They're, they're single camera, badly shot, academic looking things, but they're really good stuff. I've watched a lot of them. <laughs> she's really good. Hey, um, it's going to be an interesting few weeks ahead of us. So take care wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, try and do the right thing. Remember, it's about keeping the hospitals empty. It's not about you getting sick. So making sure that people who get sick really easily don't get sick so we can keep the hospitals empty so that if you get sick or I get sick or our kids get sick, we've got somewhere to go. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. Take care. Look after yourself. Oh. So I'm, I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just looking down the canal. You know I'm in the pontoon district. The Sorry, the canal district. I'm watching someone's new pontoon get floated down the river. The canal, I should say. That's interesting. It must have just like a a four-stroke on the back of it, just pushing it along. It's doing about one knot, unless the bloke's rowing it. No, no, he's got a motor attached to the back of it. Gee, that's really interesting. Oh, he's got the ramp on top of the pontoon. He's just floating it. Huh. Fascinating. All right, then. Better go whack up a baby. We've got the shade cloth over the pool. Going to put some floaties on a baby and splash around. 
it's gonna be sick. I hope wherever you are, you're okay. I'm sure your plans got very, very changed, but I hope that regardless of your changed plans, you have an okay time. And remember why we're doing this. We're very, very, very lucky to live in this country. Let's keep us all safe so we can stay and enjoy the life we have. Thank you for a massive 2020, Rachel Barrett. Without you, I would not have had the year I've had. Rachel Barrett is the executive producer of this show. She's one of my managers. She's the reason that anything you've heard or seen me do this year has happened. I come up with Madonna's ideas. She makes them happen. She's amazing. Thank you to Andy Marr for being the best audio producer a man could want. He's cut every episode this year, made it all happen sometimes with crazy turnarounds. Thank you to Haley for all the social media work. Thank you, Toe Hider, for the brilliant music. Go listen to Toe Hider's new album. It's awesome. I'll speak to you in a couple of days. Until we speak next time, happy new year. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Yeah, can you hear that little outboard? Someone got a new pontoon for Christmas. Ripper. 